This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 26. Chapter 19. A Tale of Two Cities. As an example of Dickens' literary work, A Tale of Two Cities is not wrongly named. It is his most typical contact with the civic ideals of Europe. All his other tales have been tales of one city. He was in spirit a cockney, though that title has been quite unreasonably twisted to mean a cad. By the old sound and proverbial test, a cockney was a man born within sound of bow bells. That is, he was a man born within the immediate appeal of high civilization and of eternal religion. Shakespeare, in the heart of his fantastic forest, turns with a splendid suddenness to the cockney ideal as being the true one after all, for a jest, for a reaction, for an idle summer love, or a still idler summer hatred. It is well to wander away into the bewildering forest of Arden. It is well that those who are sick with love or sick with the absence of love, those who weary of the folly of courts, or weary yet more of their wisdom, it is natural that these should trail away into the twinkling twilight of the woods. Yet it is here that Shakespeare makes one of his most arresting and startling assertions of the truth. Here is one of those rare and tremendous moments of which one may say that there is a stage direction enter shakespeare he has admitted that for men weary of courts for men sick of cities the wood is the wisest place and he has praised it with his purest lyric ecstasy but when a man enters suddenly upon that celestial picnic a man who is not sick of cities but sick of hunger a man who is not weary of courts but weary of walking then shakespeare lets through his own voice with a shattering sincerity and cries the praise of practical human civilization. If ever you have looked on better days, if ever you have sat at good men's feasts, if ever been where bells have knolled to church, if ever from your eyelids wiped a tear, or know what tis to pity and be pitied. There is nothing finer even in Shakespeare than that conception of the circle of rich men, all pretending to rough it in the country and the one really hungry man entering sword in hand and praising the city if ever been where bells have knolled to church if you have ever been within sound of bow bells if you have ever been happy and haughty enough to call yourself a cockney we must remember this distinction always in the case of dickens dickens is the great cockney at once tragic and comic who enters abruptly upon the Arcadian banquet of the aesthetics and says, Forbear, and eat no more, and tells them that they shall not eat until necessity be served. If there was one thing he would have favored instinctively, it would have been the spreading of the town as meaning the spreading of civilization. And we should, I hope, all favor the spreading of the town, if it did mean the spreading of civilization. The objection to the spreading of the modern Manchester or Birmingham suburb is simply that such a suburb is much more barbaric than any village in Europe could ever conceivably be. 
and again if there is anything that dickens would have definitely hated it is that general treatment of nature as a dramatic spectacle a piece of scene painting which has become the common mark of the culture of our wealthier classes despite many fine pictures of natural scenery especially along the english roadsides he was upon the whole emphatically on the side of the town he was on the side of bricks and mortar he was a citizen and after all a citizen means a man of the city his strength was after all in the fact that he was a man of the city but after all his weakness his calamitous weakness was that he was a man of one city for all practical purposes he had never been outside such places as chatham and london he did indeed travel on the continent but surely no man's travel was ever so superficial as his he was more superficial than the smallest and commonest tourist he went about europe on stilts he never touched the ground there is one good test and one only of whether a man has travelled to any profit in europe an englishman is as such a european and as he approaches the central splendours of europe he ought to feel that he is coming home if he does not feel at home he had much better have stopped at home england is a real home london is a real home and all the essential feelings of adventure or the picturesque can easily be gained by going out at night upon the flats of essex or the cloven hills of surrey your visit to europe is useless unless it gives you the sense of an exile returning your first sight of rome is futile unless you feel that you have seen it before thus useless and thus futile were the foreign experiments and the continental raids of dickens he enjoyed them as he would have enjoyed as a boy a scamper out of chatham into some strange meadows as he would have enjoyed when a grown man a steam in a police boat out into the fens to the far east of london but he was the cockney venturing far he was not the european coming home he is still the splendid cockney orlando of whom i spoke above he cannot but suppose that any strange men being happy in some pastoral way are mysterious foreign scoundrels dickens real speech to the lazy and laughing civilization of southern europe would really have run in the shakespearean words but whoe'er you be who in this desert inaccessible under the shade of melancholy boughs lose and neglect the creeping hours of time if ever you have looked on better things if ever been where bells have knolled to church if in short you ever have the advantage of being born within sound of bow bells dickens could not really conceive that there was any other city but his own it is necessary thus to insist that dickens never understood the continent because only thus can we appreciate the really remarkable thing he did in a tale of two cities it is necessary to feel first of all the fact that to him london was the centre of the universe he did not understand at all the real sense in which paris is the capital of europe he had never realized that all roads lead to rome he had never felt as an englishman can feel that he was an athenian before he was a londoner yet with everything against him he did this astonishing thing he wrote a book about two cities one of which he understood the other he did not understand 
and his description of the city he did not know is almost better than his description of the city he did know this is the entrance of the unquestionable thing about dickens the thing called genius the thing which everyone has to talk about directly and distinctly because no one knows what it is for a plain word as for instance the word fool always covers an infinite mystery a tale of two cities is one of the more tragic tints of the later life of dickens it might be said that he grew sadder as he grew older but this would be false for two reasons first a man never or hardly ever does grow sad as he grows old on the contrary the most melancholy young lovers can be found forty years afterwards chuckling over their port wine and second dickens never did grow old even in a physical sense what weariness did appear in him appeared in the prime of life it was due not to age but to overwork and his exaggerative way of doing everything to call dickens a victim of elderly disenchantment would be as absurd as to say the same of keats such fatigue as there was was due not to the slowing down of his blood but rather to its unremitting rapidity he was not wearied by his age rather he was wearied by his youth and though a tale of two cities is full of sadness it is full also of enthusiasm that pathos is a young pathos rather than an old one yet there is one circumstance which does render important the fact that a tale of two cities is one of the later works of dickens this fact is the fact of his dependence upon another of the great writers of the victorian era and it is in connection with this that we can best see the truth of which i have been speaking the truth that his actual ignorance of france went with amazing intuitive perception of the truth about it it is here that he has most clearly the plain mark of the man of genius that he can understand what he does not understand dickens was inspired to the study of the french revolution and to the writing of a romance about it by the example and influence of carlyle thomas carlyle undoubtedly rediscovered for englishmen the revolution that was at the back of all their policies and reforms it is an entertaining side joke that the french revolution should have been discovered for britons by the only british writer who did not really believe in it nevertheless the most authoritative and the most recent critics on that great renaissance agree in considering carlyle's work one of the most searching and detailed power carlyle had read a great deal about the french revolution dickens had read nothing at all except carlyle carlyle was a man who collected his ideas by the careful collation of documents and the verification of references dickens was a man who collected his ideas from loose hints in the streets and those always the same streets as i have said he was the citizen of one city carlyle was in his way learned dickens was in every way ignorant dickens was an englishman cut off from france carlyle was a scotsman historically connected with france and yet when all this is said and certified dickens is more right than carlyle dickens french revolution is probably more like the real french revolution than carlyle's it is difficult if not impossible to state the grounds of this strong conviction one can only talk of it by employing that excellent method which cardinal newman employed when he spoke of the notes of catholicism there were certain notes of the revolution 
one note of the revolution was the thing which silly people call optimism and sensible people call high spirits carlyle could never quite get it because with all his spiritual energy he had no high spirits that is why he preferred prose to poetry he could understand rhetoric for rhetoric means singing with an object but he could not understand lyrics for the lyric means singing without an object as every one does when he is happy now for all its blood and its black guillotines the french revolution was full of mere high spirits nay it was full of happiness this actual lilt and levity carlyle never really found in the revolution because he could not find it in himself dickens knew less of the revolution but he had more of it when dickens attacked abuses he battered them down with exactly that sort of cheery and quite one-sided satisfaction with which the french mob battered down the bastille dickens utterly and innocently believed in certain things he would i think have drawn the sword for them carlyle half believed in half a hundred things he was at once more of a mystic and more of a sceptic carlyle was the perfect type of the grumbling servant the old grumbling servant of the aristocratic comedies he followed the aristocracy but he growled as he followed he was obedient without being servile just as caleb balderstone was obedient without being servile but dickens was the type of man who might really have rebelled instead of grumbling he might have gone out into the street and fought like the man who took the bastille it is somewhat nationally significant that when we talk of the man in the street it means a figure silent slouching and even feeble when the french speak of the man in the street it means danger in the street no one can fail to notice this deep difference between dickens and carlyle whom he avowedly copied splendid and symbolic as are carlyle's scenes of the french revolution we have in reading them a curious sense that everything is happening at night in dickens even massacre happens by daylight carlyle always assumes that because things were tragedies therefore the men who did them felt tragic dickens knows that the man who works the worst tragedies is the man who feels comic as for example mr quilp the french revolution was much simpler world than carlyle could understand for carlyle was subtle and not simple dickens could understand it for he was simple and not subtle he understood that plain rage against plain political injustice he understood again that obvious vindictiveness and that obvious brutality which followed cruelty and the abuse of absolute power he told an american slave owner are two of the bad passions of human nature carlyle was quite incapable of rising to the height of that uplifted common sense he must always find something mystical about the cruelty of the french revolution the effect was equally bad whether he found it mystically bad and called the thing anarchy or whether he found it mystically good and called it the rule of the strong in both cases he could not understand the common-sense justice or the common-sense vengeance of dickens and the french revolution yet dickens has in this book given a perfect and final touch to this whole conception of mere rebellion and mere human nature carlyle had written the story of the french revolution and had made the story a mere tragedy 
Dickens writes the story about the French Revolution and does not make the revolution itself the tragedy at all. Dickens knows that an outbreak is seldom a tragedy. Generally it is the avoidance of a tragedy. All the real tragedies are silent. Men fight each other with furious cries because men fight each other with chivalry and an unchangeable sense of brotherhood. But trees fight each other in utter stillness because they fight each other cruelly and without quarter. In this book, as in history, the guillotine is not the calamity, but rather the solution of the calamity. The sin of Sidney Carton is a sin of habit, not a revolution. His gloom is the gloom of London, not the gloom of Paris. End of section 26, chapter 19 a tale of two cities.